All right, well, hey, good morning, I'm Mark, executive pastor here, excited, because there are some people in the room. Because I'm going to tell you, I learned something about myself during this deal, that uh, talking to an empty room and just a camera is about like, you know, taking toothpicks and sticking them under my fingernails. Like, I, I, it's just something I do not enjoy. So having some folks in the room, uh, man, is awesome. So I appreciate you guys coming out and you guys that are watching online. That's awesome that we can, we can do it together. I'm also excited because this whole study of the parables is just, is just cool. Have you guys enjoyed it so far? I mean, I just, I love story and these, these stories and the way that Jesus uses them and the way that he teaches. And there's just so much, uh, they're just so rich. And the one that we're going to look at today is my favorite. It's the, the prodigal son, you, uh, Luke chapter 15. And I'm, I'm not going to do it justice today. We can. I mean, it's, there's just so much there. Um, so I would encourage you to, to read it on your own today or this week and to dive deeper into it. But there's a few key points that I want to pull out. And it's just been a significant uh, picture for me in a lot of different seasons of my life. And God has just used it. Big time. And, you know, even if you haven't been around church that much, the, the prodigal son you might have heard. I even heard a song on the radio this week that mentioned in the song, it mentioned some reference to the prodigal son. So, uh, but if you, if you don't remember, it's, you know, there's this story that Jesus tells about this, these two brothers and, and the younger brother goes to the father and says, hey, I want my inheritance early. And this daddy like splits it up and gives it to the two boys and the younger boy, he goes away and he spends it all and then a famine hits the land and then he finds himself at the end of himself and he's like, man, my daddy's servants are having a lot better than this. Maybe, maybe if I just beg, I can go back and just be one of his servants. But when he gets back, his dad sees him coming a long ways off and before he can even get out those words of apology, his dad cuts him off says, hold up, boy, you're home, throws a big party. There are two more stories right before that that Jesus tells that kind of build up to that. And in all three stories, there's this reoccurring theme of something being lost, something being found, and then a party being thrown. And so, like I said, there's a lot of different pieces that we could look at it, but this part of a party being thrown, I think in the past I haven't really just celebrated that. He talks about a party three different times. Hey, in your world, what does it take to justify throwing a party? Think about it. I mean, I remember growing up, like, we might have a party on my birthday. You know, Christmas, we kind of maybe went to a Christmas party. You know, there were certain times that there was something that justified that was worthy of a party, but it seemed kind of few and far between. I think now I'm more like, man, hey, St. Patrick's Day, woohoo! Cinco de Mayo, you know, Wednesday afternoon. I don't have to have a whole lot to get excited about. Hey, there's something to, get to throw a little shindig over. But uh, three different times, as Jesus is telling us, he's saying that there is something worth throwing a party over. And I think he says it clearest um, right at the beginning. He, he tells a story about a shepherd that's lost a sheep. And he says when he finds it in verse 7, there will be more, rejoice, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. When he talks about this party, he says there's going to be this joy and this rejoicing and this celebration that happens in heaven. Heaven breaks loose in a party when someone repents. And so today I want to talk a lot about that, about what it means 
for us to, to repent. There is, um, this parable is also interesting because, you know, the ones that we've been looking at, Jesus tells some story, and then everybody's kind of puzzled, or, you know, somebody asks a question, he comes back, and then he gives the explanation. But in this parable, he actually gives all of the explanation up front, and then he tells the story. And there, although there are three stories, it's actually just, it's, it's just one parable. And so it's really interesting what he does. So I'll start out here in the beginning. It says, it sets the, the tone. He's got, it says, uh, uh, chapter 15, verse 1, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. All right, so some huge things about Jesus. One, the tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to him. Y'all, if we're going to understand who this Jesus is that we follow, that's a huge thing. And if we're going to walk in his footsteps in any way and try to figure out what it looks like to, to live in our community and be anything like Jesus, we just need to know that he was attractive to the tax collectors and the sinners. And I think the best way that I can describe that group, they're people who were doing bad stuff and knew it. And everybody else knew it too. And that group of people wanted to draw near to Jesus. And you can look at when the Pharisees and the scribes, those who also were broken, but you know, had kind of built their life around doing things right and keeping the rules and not looking like they were, they were wrong. When that group starts to complain, they say, look at him. The thing they're mad about is that he receives them and he eats with them. He eats with those people. So for them, that was a, that was a breaking of a rule. Can't, can't do that. And also, just for context too, like, you know, we eat together. I mean, I've always said, man, we, we eat together. That's how you get to know one another. That's how you start to share, you know, community and life together. It's always awesome. But you go Eastern culture context and you talk and eat together, you got to realize it's a whole different thing. In fact, I've, I've got a picture here of uh, one time that I was, I was in, uh, in India with some friends, and this is what eating together looked like. We were all on the ground sitting around a circle with a, one big plate and all the food on the plate, and we all eat off the plate and break bread together. That's very different than going over to Slim's and, you know, everybody's got their separate little basket, you know. Uh, while we wear a mask, you know, this, this is real deal. Like you eat with people in this context, man, you are connecting with them. This tells us that our Jesus was attractive uh, for those folks. And when he was with them, he received them and ate with them. And this really made the, the religious folk mad. Why would he do this? They were grumbling and complaining. And something else I love about Jesus in all these circumstances, like it says they were grumbling and complaining. They may have done it where he could hear them or they may have done it where he couldn't, but he still, like, he calls them out. He says, to these people. And I think this is interesting too. He says, to them, he, he told them this parable. But it, it's really to both of those groups. Not to just the one, but both were in, in earshot of this. And to both, there's a huge message, both to the group who were, you know, doing bad things in sin and knew it, and everybody else knew it, and to the group that was also broken, but didn't see themselves as broken. So I want to start there because I think this morning as we look at this, this parable, there are those 
listening this morning in both of those groups. And I think God has something to say. So the first thing is uh, he, he starts out with a question that sets the tone for the coming parable about the prodigal son. And the question that he asks, he says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after the one that is lost? Which honestly, I, I think is a really interesting question because it assumes that, yeah, you would leave the 99 and go after the one. And I'm thinking, if I'm a shepherd, I don't want to leave my 99 to go chase after the one. Like I might just let that one go for the risk of losing the 99. But it shows how important to this shepherd and evidently to his audience, they're like, man, that one sheep is valuable enough. And when they're together, there's some you know, protection for those. That, but a sheep out by itself is totally in, in all kinds of danger to hurt itself, to run off the side of a cliff, or to get eaten, right? You know, y'all have watched the National Geographic where the one goes astray, and then, brr, that lion is done, you know? So, so the, he says, man, and, and he asks him the question to this crowd, what man of you having a hundred sheep? So immediately he puts his crowd in the position of the shepherd, which I think is genius of Jesus, because he's going to do it with this story, and then he's going to do it again. And then when he gets ready to tell the prodigal son's story, if you've heard and answered in your own brain these two questions, you automatically put yourself in the position of the father who is losing something. Because he said, hey, which one of you, if you had sheep, which one of you, if you lost a coin, would do this? So the assumption is you got the night your shepherd, you, you got the hundred sheep, you lose the one sheep. He says, uh, he goes after the one until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, what does he do? He calls together all of his friends and he throws a party. Rejoice for me, for I have found my lost sheep. Then he says, or what woman of you, having ten silver coins, loses one coin? So... Put yourself in the position of a woman. You, you've got 10 coins. That's what you have. And you've lost one of the 10. 10% of what you have is gone somewhere. What do you do? Well, the assumption is, man, that one coin, if it's 10% of all you have, you go, you, you, you're going to search for it. So what does he say? Which one? She lights a lamp. You would light a lamp. You would sweep the house and diligently look for it. And then when you found it, what are you going to do? I'm going to call my friends together and throw a party because my coin that was lost, it's found. And then he says something very similar to what he said the first time, which what I love about these, this being repetitive is that it's really clear what Jesus is trying to get across. Something's lost, something's found, she throws a party, and then it says, uh, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Man, this repentance thing must be a big deal. So then he goes into the story. And like I said before, you can read uh, all the specifics on your own, but this younger, these two boys, younger son is like, Dad, just, just give me my inheritance now. And there is no way to get around. We can't understand all the implications. Brad and I were talking about it a minute ago. We can't understand all the implications of what this means in Eastern culture, but at just a base level, if... You go to your father and you say, hey, I want my inheritance now. There is no way you get around that. You're just saying, hey, I don't, 
I don't really want to have a relationship with you. I don't want to know you. I want to live as though you were dead now, even though you're alive. Now, remember, he's just asked two questions where the hearers, we have to put ourselves in the position of the father. How does it feel to be that father? Think about it. That your son would come to you and basically say, I wish you were dead. My life would be better off if I just had your money, but I was on my own. You know, throughout this, there's this picture of something being lost. And when we talk about people being lost, or when you think about a season in your life, maybe even now that the Bible would speak of you as lost, you know, it, it says that Jesus in chapter 19, it says that Jesus came to, to seek and to save the lost. And I've t- had friends before go, man, I, I don't like the way that feels that you would say that I was, like the Bible would say that I was lost. I don't, I don't feel lost. I don't, you know. This parable, this, as I studied it this time, it really got me thinking that something being lost is from the perspective of the one who lost it. A father who has lost a son. When we've chosen our own way, the father who wants closeness and relationship with us, now his son or daughter has gone their own way. Imagine how it feels to lose. I... Uh, I've told this story before. I, I have to tell it on Father's Day because this was my, my best father moment, you know, probably. Uh, you know, I've got, I've got a few really good father moments. Father's Day a few years ago, I actually talked that morning. And then uh, we rushed over to Smitty's to grab a hamburger with my dad. I grabbed the kids. Terry was going to meet me there. I walked in, my dad was already there, so I, I rushed in to go and make sure that, that he didn't check out so I could get his meal, and, and so then I got all the food ready, and we sat down, and then Terry walked in, and she, she said, where's Jack? He's in the car, and it was a hot day. You talking about how it felt from the table I mean, I dead sprint. I don't know who I hit or elbowed as I was trying to make it to the door. I passed by these people, and the whole I'm looking. They look at me, and I look at them. And I'm like, yeah, I'm the daddy who left his son in the car out there. Hope you didn't see him. in the you know, luckily I got to the car, and he was still there, and he was sleeping. He was he was sweating a little bit, but he was all right. If you've got children, do you know what it, that moment that it feels like that that you've lost them? Jack, I guess Jack's just like this, man. We, we were at a wrestling tournament. And we couldn't find him. And it got bad enough that over the loudspeaker, they got the whole, everybody that was there involved. And everybody was looking and all, and we couldn't find him. We couldn't find him underneath the stands, all the way other places. And it got to the place that I was just running circles around the gym, and my heart was just racing. You know where that boy was? He was on the elevator just going up and down. Ding, 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 ding. But to lose something, I lost a passport one time, and it just... It's just sickening when you lose something. But to lose a child, man, it hurts. It says that uh, this boy walks off, and something that's amazing to me is that the father doesn't chase him. The father doesn't say, no, you can't have my inheritance. You're going to stay right here, boy. The father doesn't, let him go and then search him down to find out where he was. The father loves him, but he allows the boy to, to walk off. 
But then something amazing happens. It says that, you know, it, he squandered all the money on crazy stuff, and then a famine hits the land, and he finds himself working at a pig farm and just wanting to eat the food that the pigs are eating. And then in verse 17, it says, When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread to eat? But I will perish here with hunger. When he came to himself. Another version says, When he came to his senses. There is this massive turning point. And if you know Jesus this morning, you could go back and you could, you could term, it, turn it, term it that way. Like, uh, instead of using the word repentance, what, what was that moment that you came to your senses? That you looked around at your life and at your pursuits and the thing that you were giving yourself over to and you were finding your joy in and you came to your senses and you realized what the end of that looks like. Or maybe you experienced what the end of that looks like. And like this son, you look up and you go, what am, I, what am I doing? Even my daddy's servants have it better than this. And so he says, man, maybe if I just go back, I can, I can say I'm sorry. And, you know, I can just beg him that maybe he would let me just, you know, be one of his hired hands because that would be better than what I've got right now. And so he makes the trip back. And then it says as he's making his way down the drive, you know, I pictured that being a really long driveway. That the father is there looking, and the minute he sees him, he runs out to meet him and embraces him. The thing that was lost has been found. My son, he says it two different times, my son who was dead, who was lost, is now alive and has been found. And the minute the son goes to try to speak and to say, Dad, I'm sorry, da-da-da, he just cuts him off. He says, "Uh uh-uh. He puts the ring on his finger, throws a party, get get ready, we're we're fixing to celebrate. We get the picture of a father that the minute that that boy came to his senses, he was running out to meet him in love. He was waiting for the moment for the turn. But y'all, I have to throw out this thought and challenge this morning, you know. The significant part was when he came to his senses and made a turn. The father loved him all along. The father was waiting all along. But what would have happened if the father had chased him down to where he was doing his stuff and waved over there? Hey, I'm over here. Oh, really? Something significant had to happen in that boy's life for him to realize he was at the end of himself and his only hope was going back to the father. And then there's a party. And uh, the older brother, he doesn't like the fact that there's a party. And, you know, it's, it's pretty pointed towards these scribes and Pharisees because he's doing the same thing that they're doing. He, he grumbles and he complains and he says, man, I've been here all along and you haven't done this for me. This guy does all this, and he comes back, and you're going to throw him a party? I'm not even going to go to it. And the dad asks, no, I'm not going to do it. And the father says, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. 
he was lost and is found. You know, this setting, you've got the tax collectors and the sinners. And it says that they're really close to Jesus. They've drawn near to hear him. And you've got the scribes and the Pharisees. And I almost picture them over in the corner, grumbling and complaining. They haven't drawn near. And of those two different groups, both broken, one, you know, chasing their own independence, running from God to find life apart from him, maybe. The other group, trying to find their significance in their following of the rules and dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's. But which of those two groups is closest to Jesus? It's the group that at least recognizes, I'm, I'm doing bad things, and I'm in need. That's the reason he says time and time again, there's more rejoicing over one sinner that repents than over the 99 who don't think that they have any need of repentance. You know, uh, Caleb and Brennan were probably, I'd say, uh, six and eight, something like that. And uh, we lived in this house that was on the side of a hill, and it was a really, really steep hill. So the front of the house was at the top, and then the backyard was just like this. Man, I put a trampoline back there, and trying to make a level trampoline when the ground, I and mean, I'm not kidding, it was steep. And, um, and growing up, we, our backyard was like that. And my dad hung this bag swing. And, you know, like you would get on it up here. But then when you would swing out, man, it was incredible. And it was, uh, it was steep, and it was a really, really tall tree. And it just, I was honestly scared for my life. But this wasn't quite like that. You did, by the time I got it fixed, you did swing out over the other, the neighbor's yard, which was pretty cool over the fence. But, but to string it, I remembered how my dad did it. You know, you had to get that rope and somehow get it up over a limb. If you get it up over a limb, then you can do it. So, so I was like, man, my boys are going to have a bag swing like I had. So I was, all right, that's the tree. I can't get to that here. I can't get to it here. So in, I was just driven. So I got up on top of the roof, and I, got, I climbed out on the roof. Now, you got to realize, I mean, this, it was a, you know, a two-story house, and it was like, th- like that. So by the time you added up on the roof, I mean, I was a long ways off the ground. And I had a rope, and I, I had a rock tied in this rope, and I was going to you know, throw it around that limb. And I'm, I'm doing this and about to make it and doing this and about to make it. Oh, about to knock that over. Do it. Is. And, and then at one point, I like do it, and I kind of stumble. And I look down, and I look. <laughs> and I thought to myself, self, what are you doing, you know? I mean, it just came to my senses, like there's, I mean, I might lasso that tree, but this has a lot of possibility that this is not going to end well, you know? What if I do, but I die in the process? Boy, boys would be like, man, I love having my back swing. Wish I had my dad, but um, that moment of coming to our senses and realizing, hey, Um, the way that I've been looking at things and the way that I've been going at things is broken. Y'all, that's huge. And when that happens in somebody's life, that's the reason to celebrate. It says all heaven rejoices. Now, for the younger son, for the, the tax collectors and the sinners, that means coming to the point that they look at their pursuit, 
and they realize I am not able to stand on my own and find life and joy and peace apart from God. Like, it, it, it's broken. It's, it's really this, this just like, like when I was on that roof, just like looking at life in truth. This is not going to end well. I might, might be okay right now, and it might seem like this is working out, but this is going to end poorly. But then that other group of those that, maybe us, and have kept all the rules and have made our life about trying to be as good as God so that we really don't need him that much. And stopping and realizing, man, you ain't, you're not God. I mean, this moment, if he took the oxygen from this room, we would all fall dead. The, I mean, I'm not a scientist. My, Jack's becoming one. He told me he was going to be an inventor and he made this suit. If you put it in a machine and you went, it would spit out this incredible suit that keeps you warm all year round. It's got booties. But, I, you know, the gravitational pull and all of the, you know, like, do we ever stop for just a second and go, I am not able to do this apart from God. And this Jesus is not just an add-on but I'm going to have to change direction and realize that he's my only hope. Repentance really does mean this, this, this change of direction. You know, if you've been in a fight with your spouse or with somebody and they've said, I'm sorry, and you go, yeah, whatever. You're sorry don't mean sorry. I, I, I tell the kids that all the time. They'll say sorry. I'm like, you're sorry don't mean sorry. You mean something. It means, it means yeah, you, you wish that that hadn't happened, but, but be careful how you use the word sorry because if I really mean I'm sorry in the, in the way that this means I'm sorry, that, this boy didn't come back and not have a change. It, he had a change of direction. My independence going out on my own is not going to work. The place I need to be is in the home of my father. And that father full of love, this God that we worship who is love, meets us with open arms at the moment that we really turn around. So I think there, there are those of us this morning that we maybe never have really stopped long enough to look around us and recognize where we are and how desperately we need him. Maybe it's because we didn't picture that he was <laughs> jumping up off the porch, <laughs> running to meet us. That's the God that, that's the, the, the creator God. Maybe it's because we're still in that pursuit of, I think I can make it better, just kind of going my own way. But I think there's also a lot of us that maybe there have been, there's been a moment in our life where we came to our senses and we turned to him. But if we, we evaluated things right now in the midst of everything that's going on, in the midst of the last few months, and we had to really evaluate, has my focus been on him? Or have I kind of started to, to find, try to find life in other places, in other things? And if I really back up and look at things in truth, 
really look at it in truth. I'm not leaning on him right now. I'm leaning on me. And I'm not strong enough to hold life up. I'm not strong enough to hold my marriage up. I'm not strong enough to, to be a good parent. I'm not strong enough. I'm really not strong enough to do much of anything. But if I'll come to my senses and put my focus on him, Jesus tells this story to show us that he will meet us there, throw a party, and then meet all of those needs and all those things that we have with his strength, which is strong enough to hold. So what does it look like to come to, to your senses this morning? Let me, let me pray that we would.